I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me in the second and third segments of today's program is Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. I know you're going to appreciate Jeffrey's perspective. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the unintended consequences of some of the constraints that are in place presently as a result of the coronavirus situation. Again, that'll be in segments two and three of today's program. You know, we are living in times that are very challenging and they continue to rapidly change and evolve. And I want to talk to you a bit in this segment about uh, what's going on that might affect your money, your IRA, and your 401k. But I read a quote this past week that I wanted to pass on to you. The quote is from Eric Hoffer, and Mr. Hoffer said this, In times of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. I thought that was especially appropriate given where we are now and certainly given where financial planning and planning for retirement is now. We are living in uncharted territory, as I'll talk about in this segment. So in times of change, learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. We are attempting to help you all be learners. At retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, we have a number of resources available. Uh, we are also, uh, this week, uh, doing a Social Security maximization webinar, and we'll also talk about how things are changing financially and economically as a result of all this new monetary policy. Uh, you can go register for the webinar uh, at rescueyourretirementwebinar.com, rescueyourretirementwebinar.com, and uh, you'll see all the webinar times uh, published there. Now, the focus of policymakers has been to flatten the curve. Certainly, we've heard a lot about that. And when we say flatten the curve, we're referring to the number of coronavirus infections that there might be. But there is another curve that is being discussed far less. But over time, this curve won't flatten, and it will end up causing economic and financial outcomes that may be devastating for those who are unprepared. Now, what curve am I talking about? Well, it's the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Now, if you're a new listener to this program, when the Fed balance sheet expands, it simply means that the Fed is creating money virtually out of thin air. Now, the Fed doesn't manufacture anything to sell. So in order for the Fed to get money to buy assets from member banks, that money is just created. And now, under the new rules just passed as part of the CARES Act, which incidentally have not been discussed very much, the Fed can print money to loan to the U.S. Treasury. The U.S. Treasury can now use something called an SPV, or a Special Purpose Vehicle, to buy corporate bond vehicles on the open market 
by borrowing newly created money from the Federal Reserve. So in effect, this nationalizes a lot of the private sector and does throw does so through money creation. Now, if you think about that for a minute and let that sink in, it's alarming. The Treasury, more specifically the Treasury Secretary, perhaps at the direction of whoever's sitting in the Oval Office, now has their finger on the money printing machine. What could possibly go wrong? The Federal Reserve's balance sheet just reached almost $6.5 trillion. That's up $2.5 trillion this year alone. That's remarkable that that much money has been created literally out of thin air. But this past week, the Fed took an even more extreme position. The Fed stated they would begin purchasing junk bonds as well. And again, where are they going to get the money to buy these junk bonds? They're going to print it. Now, junk bonds, for those of you that are not familiar, are bonds that are below investment grade, and they carry more risk than an investment grade bond. Now, this demonstrates just how desperate the Fed has become. Under the CARES Act, the Fed will loan money to the Treasury to buy corporate bond issues. And now, in addition to that move, the Fed has announced the central bank will directly buy junk bonds. Now, this despite the fact that it's not legal for the Fed to directly purchase any security that is not government-backed. Now, they insist they have the authority, but in reality, it seems that they do not. But here's the danger. It also puts the Fed in the position of deciding which junk bonds to buy. What junk bonds are they going to buy? Well, by, by assuming that position, the Fed is now able to pick winners and able to pick losers. This makes the Fed even more political. Money creation is on steroids. Let me give you some perspective here. The Federal Reserve created about $3 trillion in new money from the end of 2008 to the beginning of 2020. At this rate, the Fed will have printed an equivalent by the 1st of May 2020. That's as much money creation in four months as occurred over the last 12 years. Now, I have been repeatedly warning of a slippery slope and an ultimate Dow to gold ratio of two or even one based on my study of history. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with a Dow to gold ratio, it is simply the value of the Dow divided by the price of gold per ounce in U.S. dollars. The value of the Dow divided by the price of gold per ounce in U.S. dollars. In my new retirement rules book that was written back in 2015, I predicted we would see that ratio get to two or even one. In order for that ratio to reach two, gold would have to be $3,000 an ounce and the Dow would have to be 6000 One would see them on par with each other. Now, that seems even at this point quite extreme. However, as I discussed on last week's program, there now seems to be a path on which we get to that Dow to gold ratio. 
this V-shaped recovery that so many are hopeful that we see, I believe, is highly unlikely. Now, there's a lot of reasons I think that, but the primary two are, one, already anemic corporate earnings are going to become weaker as a result of all the constraints in place. And secondly, the primary driver of higher stock prices since the financial crisis was corporate stock buybacks. Those are now going to be going away, given that companies that take money from the government will now be prohibited from engaging in this activity. So I think we see a lot more potential downside here for stocks. Now, I'm going to talk to you more about this in the last segment of today's program, program, but let me just remind you that if you'd like to learn more, we have a webinar that is informational that we will be holding this week. Uh, the webinar, uh, you can register for the webinar, I should say, by visiting rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. We'll talk about social security maximization, and we'll talk about some strategies that you might consider moving ahead given all the changes that we're seeing, not only in the economy, but in the response to what's going on in the economy. These are truly historic times. So again, if you'd like to register for that free webinar, just visit rescueyourretirementwebinar.com. The website again is rescueyourretirementwebinar.com, and you can get more information there or register while capacity remains. I'll be back after these words with Jeffrey Tucker. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. The website is AIER.org. The website, again, is AIER.org. And, uh, Jeffrey, welcome back to the program. It's nice to talk to you again, Dennis. So, Jeffrey, uh, give me your take uh, on where the U.S. economy stands now as we're recording this conversation on Monday, April 13. Uh, both going into these coronavirus constraints, economically speaking, and now? Going into this, I think we were in pretty good shape. There were some problems developing here and there, and some people thought we were overdue for a correction. I don't know if that's true. I don't really believe that business cycles are on some sort of timeline. Just because 10 years had gone by without the previous correction, that doesn't mean one was coming. So I think we were okay, and I think there are some more tax cuts coming. Uh, I was, as you know, very concerned about the trade wars, um, which I found very disruptive. But of course, nobody had any idea about what was going to hit us. And what what hit us was was the astonishing shutdown uh, under the in the wake of uh, coronavirus panic, and 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 then the stimulus packages, which have. You know, surpassed all records for spending legislation. And there's a tremendously damaging stuff in there, you know, just just vast amounts of pork given out to every special interest you can possibly ever imagine. Very little of it having anything to do with fixing uh, the problem it's supposed to fix. It will not stimulate anything. You can't stimulate something if that's, that's forbidden. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So, of course, we have 20 million unemployment claims, and those are only going to rise and spread. Um, it's not just unessential businesses. Once you disrupt 
an economy to this extent, everybody begins to suffer. So uh, we're going to see a lot of bleeding uh, taking place over the coming weeks. And then uh, we have to open this economy up now or else uh, we'll do permanent damage to all of our economic structures and prosperity. And Jeffrey, I want to get back to the policy response in just a minute, but I'd I'd like to get your take on uh, some of the changes with regard to the Fed. Um, as part of the CARES Act, uh, the Fed can now loan money to the U.S. Treasury so the Treasury can use SPVs or special purpose vehicles now to take really ownership interest in, in, in U.S. corporate bonds. And now last week, the Fed announced that even though it seems like there's no legal authority for them to do it, the Fed is now going to buy junk bonds, which seems like a way to prop up markets. Uh, give us your take on that whole, uh, th th that whole situation and then how it affects our average listener. Well, the Fed has engaged in unprecedented activities, and we thought until very recently that the Fed had reached the end of its power to uh, stimulate the economy or, or generate inflation, whatever it might be. But now these are brand new tools that are being used. We've never seen anything like this. I have talked to a, a lot of uh, people who are very close Fed watchers, and even they're, they are confused by what the effects of this might be. I think one of the factors, and everybody wants to know what price is going to rise, you know, is are we going to into a Weimar-style uh, hyperinflation, which, you know, it happened before, it could happen again. Um, but the, there are mitigating factors here, and one of which is the very likely collapse in the velocity of money. Uh, velocity of money is a technical term that refers to the pace at which money changes hands. So. If, if people get risk averse, they begin to save a lot of money and just stockpile as much as possible and spend as little as possible, that will cause the velocity to go down and will keep inflation in check and could actually produce the opposite results, um, a, a deflationary economy. So far, that's what we've seen. We've seen it in financials. We've seen it in oil prices. So... I'm th I'm thinking that's a very likely short-term result. It's just continued sinking of prices for everything, which uh, you know that also hurts uh, profitability and and makes it makes it more difficult for business to function. Long-term, I don't know. There is, I guess, there's a good reason to be extremely concerned that if the economy opens up and things get back to somewhat normal. Uh, which I think is very possible in the next couple of weeks, um, that once confidence comes back, then the banks start lending, and then the velocity goes up again, you could actually set off um, a catastrophic hyperinflation unless the Fed starts withdrawing liquidity from the economy, which I think probably they'll, they're smart enough to do that. I, I don't think that even the Federal Reserve is going to risk destroying the dollar. But... But uh, unless they stop up some of what they've done, uh, that's what we'll be facing. It's, it's quite scary. No matter how you look at it, these are very scary times. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the editorial director at the American Institute for Economic Research. You know, Jeffrey, when I look at some of the numbers that are being projected, um, I mean, we're looking at a Fed balance sheet that began the year at just under four trillion, that could be at nine or ten trillion by the end of the year. Um, and John Malden had a piece out that that he sees it maybe going to to thirty trillion. I mean, at what point do we get this inflation? And um, 
you know, will the Fed at some point act responsibly? Because it just seems to me that we haven't seen that 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 attitude from the Fed to this point. Well, after 2008, this is a fascinating question you're asking. I, I'm, I'm actually, like after 2008, we saw a kind of a dramatic expansion of the balance sheet. And then, and then they pulled this trick where they paid all the banks to keep their deposits at the Fed um, more than they could otherwise earn. And that helped uh, rein in uh, money supply expansion. So th- that, was a, that was a Bernanke trick, and it was pretty interesting. And um, I guess you could say it worked. At least, at least it worked to keep uh, the ultimate calamity at bay. I tend to think that the Fed will act pretty quickly after uh, the opening to uh, do something about this, you know, because they know that you can't just have, you know, double, tripling, quadrupling of, 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 or 10 times, you know, the balance sheet and have banks just throwing money all over the place. I mean, that will definitely destroy the dollar. And I think... Federal officials are, are smart enough to realize that at this point. Um, so certainly, what's interesting is I think we've got more intelligence at the Fed than we have at the CDC or FDA or <laughs> the National <laughs> Institute of Health and these other organizations. So, That's where I wanted to go next. <laughs> yeah, but it's it, you know we've got ridiculous bureaucrats at every level. But I think, yeah, it's weird for me to say this because I've been you know, against the Fed my entire life. But right now, I think probably some of the most reasonable people in government right now are probably associated with the Fed. So I think that there will be an effort to stop up some of this liquidity, especially if the velocity of money starts turning upwards. They watch the data pretty carefully. But if they don't do that, look, we've seen it before. We've seen hyperinflation come to very civilized economies and that's happened in Germany in 1923 nobody intended it but it just happened because the the logic and the mechanisms of money supply expansion that's just what happens sometimes things can get out of your control and i think it's a little presumptuous for the fed to believe that they could actually pull this off and it's it's actually it's utterly preposterous to try to stimulate something that's being uh, uh, suppressed you know i my friend gene epstein um, a very good economist who used to write for the Barons. He says the war we're in right now should not be called a depression or a recession. It should be called a suppression, the Great Suppression. He wants to call it that we were set out to deliberately suppress all um, economic activity. And of course, under those conditions, there's there's nothing to stimulate. It doesn't uh, doesn't make any sense, really. So, Jeffrey, give us your take on the on the policy response. Uh, I live in Michigan, and here uh, we have been banned from traveling from one of our private residences to another with our private car, even if we don't see anyone, and we can't go on a lake with our boat that has a gas motor on it, but we can row the boat out. So it seems like that that we have just draconian responses that that don't even make sense. Well, what do you make of all this? Yeah, well, it was a perfect storm, really. You know, we had a combination of a new virus, and in a time of instantaneous electronic uh, news where everybody's holding their little information box and the thing is lighting up every second about the coming disaster. And uh, people got very concerned um, after the Seattle uh, nursing homes, you know, where, you know, I forget now what the actual numbers were, but it was pretty scary to see, you know, a third of the residents contracting their disease and many of them dying just right there on the spot, dropping dead. And it seemed uh, extremely scary. And at that point, uh, that's when the media hounds got a hold of it and started 
instead of pursuing a medical response, they want a, a, a political response. Well, what could have corrected this would be a CDC that had good testing, so we could figure out how many people already had it. I think many competent experts think that probably uh, COVID-19 was, was all over the place in the United States uh, from late December all the way through January and February and March. And I know myself, I was in New York on March the 12th, and uh, people were starting to panic, not because of the virus, but because of what they thought was coming, which were the shutdowns. And that's when the politicians got into play. Now, these guys, you have to think about, about this. You know, governors, mayors, what do they specialize in? They're, most of them are trained in law, but they're all politically ambitious. You don't get to be governor without having dedicated a significant amount of your career to learning how to get votes and holding office and passing out favors to your friends and that sort of thing. So they weren't specialists in epidemiology or viruses. They didn't ask their mothers, their grandmothers, what do we do when a virus comes along? Does they, that would have helped. Instead, they fearing uh, the uh, media that's now holding government responsible for everything that happens in society, which is a preposterous attitude, decided the only thing they could really do is just start banning things, banning anything. Let's ban sports events. There's no conferences, there's no haircuts, no golfing, no boats with motors. I mean, it's just been a random and endless amount of, of, of irrational policies. One of the worst things that happened, actually, was, I can't even understand how this happened, but many governors, including some that have been a little lighter than others, uh, banned unessential surgery, you know, on the great expectation that our hospitals were going to be over, uh, overrun. Now, why would we think that a governor of a state could be a better administrator of a hospital than the workers, nurses, doctors, staff at the hospital itself. They don't want to be overrun. They could have handled this very well. Instead, governors blocked non-essential surgeries or, or what's, what's called elective surgeries, which turn out to be, that just means that, it, it, um, that it's on the schedule. It doesn't mean that it doesn't need to happen. It just means that it's scheduled and not immediately life-threatening. That turns out to apply to cancer, to um, all kinds of diagnostic, exploratory surgeries, anything related to uh, tr transplants, uh, anything that's an elective surgery that's not just immediately instantaneously necessary to preserve life was banned at hospitals. As a result, uh, uh, vast amounts of the country outside of two hotspots, uh, namely New Orleans and New York, have hospitals that are just ghost towns now. And so 80 hospitals in the United States, as of last night, had already furloughed their workers. And so we've got nurses and doctors actually losing their jobs. So, I mean, just the amount of perversity here is actually beyond belief. And now New York has a thousand empty beds and because uh, they ramped up so quick in the capacity because they had about two days of, of frenzy. And um, so now that's not a problem anymore. New Orleans isn't a problem anymore. So the... And let's, let's remember that the reason for the so-called flattening of the curve was to preserve hospital capacity. Well, that turns out to not even be an issue. Um, but nonetheless, the policies we pursued have prolonged the pain rather than dealing with the virus. And that's actually a tremendous tragedy. It's the greatest failure of central planning of my lifetime, easily. 
Well, our guest today is Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He is the Editorial Director for the American Institute for Economic Research. And I will continue my conversation with Mr. Tucker when RLA, RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tuberg, and I have the pleasure of chatting today with uh, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the Editorial Director of the American Institute for Economic Research. And, you know, Jeffrey, I think that you said something in the last segment that uh, may have taken some of our listeners by surprise, and that is that as of yesterday, which would have been April 12 as we're recording this, 80 hospitals around the country have begun to furlough workers because, as you said, the hospitals are ghost towns. Why are we not hearing that on mainstream news media outlets? The way the media works is that they these are not brilliant people. They're, they're mostly interested in clicks and views. And they have a herd mentality. And so the story that they decided would be the story, and this began a little more than a month ago, was that... Trump is a bad guy. Of course, that's always the story. <laughs> Trump's a bad guy. Why? Well, he was a bad guy for letting Russia interfere in our elections. He was a bad guy for the, the Ukrainian call or something like this. He had to be a piece. So now he's a bad guy for failing to nationalize industry and have a universal crackdown. So therefore, he's responsible for all deaths. So every single headline you see in the mainstream press that's been true for a month or six weeks has been designed to reinforce that story and that story only. That's the way they think. You know, I, I, I think you have to look at it from the point of view of a reporter on the ground, especially in times when people are losing their jobs all over the place. They want to know, what can I say to please my boss? And then the boss wants to know, what can he say to, to please uh, the publisher? And the publisher wants to know, you know, what can he say to please his friends and so on? So there develops this groupthink in the media and one storyline, and they don't want to report or talk about anything that's outside of it. So as a result, we have tremendous amount of information right now about COVID, the facts, um, what demographics are actually suffering from this, how it's uh, responding to other people, the effects on the ground with uh, the hospital industry, what hospital capacity is, and so on. But most of the information that's come out in the last several weeks contradicts this very silly, uh, highly political message that the media is presenting to you, which is always and everywhere, Trump's a bad guy. And that's, that's the way they think of it. And so that's why you're not being told these things. I recommend to people all the time, if you want to keep your sanity right now, keep your TV off. It's just ridiculous. And I would even say, go further and say, keep your radio off. You know, just listen to your podcast, listen, find people you trust, read uh, venues that are not being censored and manipulated and find out the facts on the ground. Uh, that's the only way you can really keep your sanity. Right now, the press has just become, you know, tragically, and I, I think we've all known that there's media bias, but it's one thing to be biased about politics and have the election go a different way from the way you want to. That's relatively low cost, but when it destroys a country, you're talking about something extremely serious. I really do think there's moral culpability that belongs to even our most respected opinion outlets, and by which I mean especially the New York Times, um, which has been a leader in disinformation from the very beginning of this crisis. You know, Jeffrey, uh, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He is the editorial director 
at the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, when, when, when you want to be informed, um, what are some of your trusted media outlets? Well, um, I look, I want to give credit where it's due. I think the Wall Street Journal has been one of the better sources of news out there. It's not been perfect, but I think as things go, they seem to have a, you know, concern for reality. Like there was an article on the front page the other day that said, you know, what precisely is the difference between COVID and seasonal flu? Now, that's an interesting question, you know? We, we, all of us know it's different, but in what, in what sense is it different? So they explained it in, in a very nice way. And I, I'm grateful for that. The editorial page has been for, uh, for opening, for now uh, going on. Well, actually, they were against the closings because closing the economy has nothing to do with curing a disease. That those are and mitigating disease. That has nothing to do with each other. The Wall Street Journal has been good. Um, I, t- I, you know, oddly, what I tend to do is um, I, I've curated my Twitter feed pretty carefully so that I have informed people and I follow their links. And so, uh, you know, which often are two things like medical journals um, or to uh, stat uh, statistics collectors and stat news, for example, and where you can get actual facts and uh, where the, the, it's not being fed through this wild filter that's designed to manipulate you. So I really, and it's just, by the way, Dennis, just to understand, I, I'm, I've never joined in the uh, this campaign that somehow the, the press is the enemy of the people. I never really liked that. Trump's rhetoric about that stuff always made me uncomfortable, actually. Um, I didn't like it. Um, because I, I think I believe in a free press. I do, obviously I do. But when I saw my favorite podcast I listened to for years is the New York Times Daily Podcast. I listen to it every day uh, for many, many years. And I've always loved it. And um, hold on just one second. And when I, I guess it was like early March, they started interviewing this this supposed expert on on viruses and and uh, pandemics, and he was he was saying that we need a medieval response to this. Now, why would we want a medieval response? Back in the Middle Ages, they thought disease came in miasmas; they would just blow at you, and the only way you could get away from them was hiding. But once germ theory came along, we had a completely different view, and we discovered viruses, and we understand how things are transmitted, we understand how to respond to pandemics, and we became very sophisticated. But no. This guy was going on about how the only way we're going to all keep from dying is if we all drop into place, stay, stand six feet from each other and sleep there for the next two months. Um, we had to destroy the economy. And I thought, that is the strangest thing. A week later, they had him on again. And a week later, they had him on again. And I thought, who is this guy? And so finally, I looked him up. It turns out uh, his one, and I tell you, he speaks as like the greatest expert you've ever heard in your life. Terrifying uh, person to interview. It turns out he has a degree in rhetoric from the University of California, Berkeley. That's it. Mm. That's it. Just rhetoric. Another, which is to say, he's a kind of voice actor. And when I discovered that, I was just like, you know what? This podcast, which has millions of listeners, has done the most egregious thing. And the question is, like, why? And this is where it gets interesting to me, because... Lots of my friends have told me for a while this is all designed to get Trump. I don't want to go there, but I don't discount the fact that that 
is a partial motivation, a kind of, you know, uh, from, from Batman Begins or whatever, there's the dark night, you know, the, the, the description of the Joker, that some people just want to see the world burn. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if that's a good description of the way the media has handled this. I hope it turns around and we get a little more responsibility going forward. So, Jeffrey, uh, you know, when, when, when you when you look at the economic numbers, they're 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 just absolutely frightening. Uh, you know, second quarter hit to GDP of 30 to 50 percent unemployment at greater than depression uh, era levels. If these constraints stay in place, uh, what in your mind would be the correct policy response here? Right now, 100 uh, percent emancipation of everybody. I think everybody is right now scared silly. Uh, we're, they're not going to be going to restaurants and bars, but the restaurants and bars should be able to open and uh, implement policies uh, that that their customers uh, make the, their customers feel uh, comfortable. We should be able to get haircuts. If you run a shoe store, you should be able to sell shoes, even if that means uh, you know customers pointing and grabbing a box and going. I don't I don't know what it looks like really, but we got we have to get rid of these uh, controls. Now the Congress needs to stop with these preposterous spending bills. The Fed should uh, freeze and stop its ridiculous attempt to stimulate something that's already dead, um, and we need to free the economy. Now, that doesn't mean we need to go back to where it was, because plenty of things went wrong to lead to this crisis. For example, CDC standards on, on tests and FDA's uh, attempt to constantly uh, you know, spend 15 years before they let a drug onto the market. These, these kind of things need to end. Also, don't like the trade protections and that made masks, ventilators, and swabs much more expensive for our doctors. I'd like to see uh, uh, an opening of uh, global trade again, so that we we can all benefit from each other's presence. So we, there's a lot of things we can do and should have done in the first place. But uh, continuing to do harm through shutdowns, egregious spending bills, and inflationary monetary policies is the worst thing you could do. And Dennis, you know, right now I. I'm honestly, I'm, I think there's a chance we can do it. I think there's a chance we can turn this around. But it needs to start today. We need to open up and start thinking with our heads instead of running around like our hair's on fire, uh, screaming shut everything down. <laughs> it's not working for us. Well, and it seems uh, it seems that there is some some movement to uh, to open things back up. And uh, what, what's your take? I mean, do you, do you think that's going to happen here in May? I, I, I do. I think I don't think. Thank you for asking me that. I I, I try to monitor like you do every day. And I and what I see is not even to the middle of the month yet. <clears throat> and people are getting very antsy. There's a lot of despair, uh, growing suicides, uh, panic. Uh, and um, sadness and, and domestic abuse and all the things that happen with, with uh, growing poverty. And I, I think that uh, this, this simply can't continue. Uh, the optimistic side here is that if we take the right path, starting today, and really open up and start to normalize things and start to treat this as a disease to mitigate by the medical profession to get the politicians out of it, I think we could actually be recovering very, very quickly. And that goes for the stock market. I think we'll start hiring again. And I think business investment will go up if there's a perception that this won't happen again. Um, I, I'm actually optimistic about it. I was doing some reading on um, the economic effects of the Spanish uh, flu in 1918. It was devastating. Far, far that You want to talk about deadly. That was deadly. This is just nothing compared to that. And we went through a, a very temporary Great Depression-like condition. And then as soon as the flu was gone, 
and uh, controls were, were were removed, the economy bounced back as never before, and then it was suddenly the roaring twenties. So I think I think we can repair the damage. I really do believe this. I think we can repair the damage. Uh, there, are, there are specific things that I'm actually a little more concerned about than that. One is the passage of outrageously generous unemployment benefits. Um, that is a real danger out there because you can destroy a labor market with unemployment benefits. If it, if it makes more sense for people to stay home and collect a government check than it is to go to work, you really are... Uh, uh, condemning yourself to a uh, real recession. So that is right there in the law, and I'm very worried about that. Um, but apart from that, I think I think we've not done any permanent structural damage to our economic prospects. And um, I'm actually optimistic that this is a great country. It's a country of free people, uh, a country who are, yes, we went flew into a panic, but fundamentally this is a brave country. We need to face this virus as a disease to mitigate and deal with with intelligence and expertise and through medical professionals and above all else through freedom and confidence in the future. And I think if we can shake off this period of temporary insanity and remember who we are and what we do and to start doing that today, that I think we've got what probably will be our bright future, even as early as the end of the year. Well, our guest today has been Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, Jeffrey, always a pleasure to have you on the program and appreciate you joining us in these uh, uh, very stressful times and uh, very much appreciated your perspective. Love to have you back down the road. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate it, too. All the best. We will be back after these words. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today, and thanks again to Mr. Jeffrey Tucker for joining us on today's program. You know, in the first segment, I talked about a quote that really struck me this past week. The quote is from Eric Hoffer, who said, In times of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. Pretty profound quote by Mr. Hoffer and certainly applicable to where we are today. The world is rapidly changing and certainly the economy and financial markets are changing dramatically. And we have a webinar coming up this week. Uh, You can register at Rescue Your Retirement webinar. And those that attend will get social security maximization ideas, as well as strategies to consider using in this rapidly changing environment. So I would certainly encourage you to check that out and attend if you've not yet attended. Now, in the last segment, the first segment, I should say, I talked about the fact that this V-shaped recovery for stocks, uh, I believe, is highly unlikely. Uh, There's a couple reasons for this uh, primarily. The first one is that Corporate earnings going into this were already anemic, and now they're becoming significantly weaker. And it's difficult to wrap your arms around the fact that we had massive new claims for unemployment and the stock market went up. At a certain point, we'll have stocks, I believe, catch up with the reality of what's going on in the economy. The primary driver of stock prices since the financial crisis 
were corporate stock buybacks. And those are now going to stop because any companies that take money from the government will be prohibited from engaging in this activity. And as a side note, stock buybacks were illegal from 1934 until 1982. If we see the hit to gross domestic product in the second quarter of this year that uh, many are forecasting, 30 to 50%, depending on whose numbers you want to look at, and you combine that hit to GDP with a headline unemployment rate of somewhere between 15 and 25%, and certainly the numbers I'm seeing and calculated are going to be calculated are going to be closer to that higher end of 25%, that will have to be difficult for stocks to endure. These are truly historic times. And at the same time, as I talked about in the first segment, money printing is occurring in quantities that can only be described as colossal. This will have to be bullish for tangible assets at some future point. I mean, the immediate focus of politicians and policymakers has been reacting to the economic chaos. Over the past three plus weeks, 17 million people have filed for new unemployment claims. There are probably a lot more than that, actually, but there are a lot of reports that I'm seeing of glitches in the state unemployment systems around the country that have not made it possible for all those who are eligible to file for benefits. So I expect to see that number go significantly higher before this curve eventually flattens. Now, I wrote a book back in 2011 that I called Economic Consequences. And in that book, I talked about the fact that whenever money printing starts, it's never temporary, despite the fact that policymakers insist that it is. Turns out that money printing that used to occur in the billions has now moved. So the conversation takes place not in billions, but in trillions. We are on the brink of a deflationary period that Congress, the President, and the Fed are determined to do whatever it takes to avoid. So they're responding by doing the only thing they know how to do, print, print, and print. Now, the reality, though, is this. This $2.1 trillion stimulus package, when you look at it and think about it, it's not really a stimulus package. It's really a subsistence package. This newly printed money will merely replace some of the incomes lost as a result of the coronavirus constraints. In other words, this initial package is designed to prevent a plunge into a deflationary depression. It won't provide stimulus. And incidentally, lest you think the word depression is too strong a word to use, we have never seen a quarterly decline in GDP even close to what is forecast for the second quarter of this year. That word is not too strong. So this initial package won't provide stimulus. I think we'll see more government packages in the future. They're already being discussed. And the only way these new packages will be funded is by more money creation. So are we going to see inflation. At some point, I think we will have to see inflation. The question is, where is the tipping point? When does that occur? We don't know, but you do want to protect yourself. And that's the focus of 
our educational materials. You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and subscribe to our weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter that is delivered every Monday at 5. And I also have, as I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, a webinar that you can attend. It is rescueyourretirementwebinar.com to register. Uh, we will talk about Social Security maximization and some strategies that you may want to consider using in your own individual situation, given everything that's going on now in the economy. Now, certainly I want to wish you all blessings in these difficult times. I would encourage you to stay safe, and I would encourage you to educate yourself. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you'll tune in again next week. 